This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. Well, after a summer break, I am glad to be back with you to share our reporting on this Sunday afternoon. Usually we review the past week, but we've got several weeks of reporting to catch up on including Christopher Clymer Kurtz's update on the controversy surrounding the Shenandoah Valley Juvenile Center, including uh, his interview with Senator Mark Warner, and also his interview with uh, Senator Mark Warner. We also head to Bath County, where some landowners in the path of construction of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline are encouraging campers to join them in a mass summertime protest. But first, what's in a name? Sometimes a lot, and if you spent any time in Stanton over the summer, you may have noticed the city is peppered with signs that say, Save the Name, or other signs that say, But the Name Hurts. They're both signs of the contentious debate over whether to change the name of Robert E. Lee High School or keep it as is. But WMRA's Jesse Nadler heard from residents and students and got some historical perspective, too. In early July, Queen City residents were invited to publicly voice their perspective about whether to change the name of Robert E. Lee High School. It was an open forum hosted by the Virginia Center for Inclusive Communities. A retired Stanton City school teacher and Lee High alumni got up to say she didn't want the name to change. I can't comprehend that changing the name of a building will affect what's happening inside. Let's spend money on solving problems, not creating more. I say... Save the name. It's a widely shared objection among Save the Namers. Changing the name will cost too much. Stanton Superintendent Garrett Smith didn't respond to a request for comment, so pinning down a specific number is hard to come by. But figures floating around are anywhere from a couple hundred thousand dollars to more than half a million. Garrett has said that some of those costs will be absorbed into the construction budget for an upcoming renovation of the aging school. Longtime Stanton resident Peggy Robertson also got up to speak at the forum. I have to tell you, I grew up a member of the Children of the Confederacy in singing Dixie. She talked about how her opinion changed from keeping the name to changing it after learning more about the history of the school. It was originally called Stanton High. I could not unknow what now I knew to be the truth. At the time it was given, it was meant to be a weapon of the lost cause against the African Americans. It was meant to put them in their place. Let's change the name and restore it to Stanton High School. Robertson cited academic research by Clayton McClure Brooks, an assistant professor of history at Mary Baldwin. Brooks' book, The Uplift Generation, explores efforts to mythologize and deify the Confederacy in early 20th century Virginia. Groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy worked to control the narrative of the South in the decades following the war. Here's Brooks. They influenced school systems to adopt only textbooks that they approved, They helped approve and control what history curriculum was being taught. And part of this, they campaigned to have schools renamed in the honor of the Confederacy. The United Daughters of the Confederacy successfully petitioned the Stanton School Board to change the name from Stanton High to Robert E. Lee High School in April 1914. Despite this history, lots of Stantonites, including current high school students, think the issue is kind of overblown. One of those students at the forum expressed this view. In my time at Lee High School, I have not heard of anyone feel uncomfortable by the name of our school until the past couple of weeks. 
A few weeks later, a separate group of students got together to discuss the issue in depth. The consensus among them seemed to be that inside the school, among fellow students, the name is not a huge deal. But that itself is an issue. Imani Hankinson is a senior. She's also black. You become desensitized to over time. Like it just kind of becomes something that you accept. Her concern is that the name might make people outside the school community assume it's not the most inclusive place. This was reinforced in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. The principal showed up to school dressed as Trump for Halloween, and the school secretary wore Hillary Clinton in prison garb. It made national news. Fellow senior Tay Burris recalled reading comments about it on Facebook. Like, 75% of the comments were like, oh, well, it's Robert E. Lee, like, what do you expect? As a student in that school, it, it aggravated me because that wasn't the first time I'd seen people making that statement. Tay is also black. He plays sports. He's not wild about the idea of having to wear a jersey that says Lehman on it. Like, if you just take a second to look at it from the outside, just the name Lehman sounds extremely wrong. Colin Wallace and Marcus Sassia said at first they too didn't want to get involved. They didn't have time. They were busy with other things. But listening to friends and talking to people from both sides convinced them it was time to pick a side. Here's Cullen. And I realized so many other people were affected that it might be time for me to step up and take a role in this. A sign reading, but the name hurts, is staked in his front yard. Here's Marcus. I mean, this is the first time I actually talk about it. The background of it isn't great, and I think we should start writing a different chapter. Yeah. The Stanton School Board is expected to vote on the issue in the next couple of months. For WMRA News, I'm Jesse Nadler. We turn our attention now to another controversy near Stanton at the Shenandoah Valley Juvenile Center. WMRA's Jesse Nadler first reported on the lawsuit by some migrant children held at the center last December. But an Associated Press report in June during the migrant family crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border helped shine a brighter spotlight on and renew attention to the allegations against the center in Verona. Those allegations have caused concern for many people, including uh, local, state, and federal officials, some of whom share responsibility for the operation of the facility. WMRA's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz talked with several experts and officials about the allegations, including U.S. Senator Mark Warner. We'll have that interview in a few minutes. But first, this report. The resurfacing in June of news about allegations of mistreatment of unaccompanied immigrant minors placed at the Shenandoah Valley Juvenile Center, or SVJC, came as the nation was grappling with the horror of the Trump administration's border policy that separated families. The allegations grabbed widespread attention, and the Stanton Augusta Waynesboro Citizen Action Network rallied at the facility. The facility is owned and operated by a commission of seven localities, the counties of Augusta, Rockbridge, and Rockingham, and the cities of Harrisonburg, Lexington, Stanton, and Waynesboro. Its grant from the Federal Office of Refugee Resettlement, or ORR, brought in more than $4.1 million in the fiscal year ending in 2017, or more than two-thirds of the facility's annual operating expenses. Governor Ralph Northam has ordered an investigation, and the Virginia Department of Juvenile Justice, which regulates SVJC, reported that it and a local child protective services worker have interviewed the current federal residents at the facility. News outlets reported last week that three of the plaintiffs have either been deported or withdrawn from the lawsuit, but that a John Doe 4 has been added. 
ORR says on its website that it, quote, places an unaccompanied child in the least restrictive setting that is in the best interests of the child, taking into consideration danger to self, danger to the community, and risk of flight. The use of a least restrictive setting would be appropriate, said Harrisonburg clinical psychologist Rhonda Weber. The standard of care in our country is for both mental health and also for juveniles who have conduct problems is always to do the least restrictive environment. And so any kind of detention center would be considered a last resort after all other kinds of community alternatives have been pursued and completely exhausted. Weber says she grew up in Honduras and returns there for ongoing projects, so she is familiar with the conditions that drive people to come to the U.S. A few years ago, she worked with a 17-year-old unaccompanied minor detained at SVJC, and Weber said she was concerned that such detention was abusive in itself traumatic even if facility staff were following procedures. For children who come here fleeing a situation that for them was completely intolerable, intolerable enough to make the journey here, which in and of itself is an extremely traumatic situation, you know, then to be detained and locked up and nobody speaks their language, nobody can explain to them how long they're going to be there, what's going to happen, and it's set up to be a punitive environment. It's not set up to be a therapeutic environment. It can cause complex trauma, which can impact generations, Weber said. It fundamentally alters the person and, and their sense of themselves and of their world and of people around them. I don't have any question that there would be a way to develop specialized foster or group homes or shelters for these kids that would actually save money and could be therapeutic and at least not traumatic. Many officials in the localities that own and operate SVJC did not respond to requests for comment for this report or declined to comment beyond providing statements that included general concern about the safety and welfare of children or denial of the allegations. But Harrisonburg Mayor Dina Reed said this. I feel comfortable with the fact that our governor is doing an investigation. And I also understand the outcry from our citizens. In Northern Virginia, a similar detention center commission has voted not to renew its federal contract. I know that our citizens have asked all of us, not only Harrisonburg, everyone is looking into, is that a possibility? For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer-Kurtz. Christopher also spoke at length with U.S. Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. Here's his interview. I know you have asked a lot of questions and spoken out wanting to get to the bottom of, of whatever was happening or is happening at SVJC. I wonder if you could just tell me what a couple of your questions are that you wanted answered and describe if you've gotten answers or if you're still waiting for answers. I read with great concern uh, the reports coming out of uh, this center where immigrant young folks have been held for some time and some of the reports that indicated that some of these young people had been forcibly detained, stripped and locked into a chair, some people having hoods put over their head, totally inappropriate behavior. The governor launched an investigation from the state standpoint, from the federal standpoint, This program is run by the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, Senator Kane and I have asked for investigation as well. At this point, I believe there are 14 of these um, young immigrant children at the facility. None of these individuals are part of the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy where people were separated at the border 
families torn apart. Uh, we saw some of those kids actually um, uh, held in a facility up in Northern Virginia, and the courts have ordered the reuniting of all of those families. These are young people that have been detained and sometimes have been detained because they've had some prior challenges or not performed in other facilities. We just want to make sure that these young folks are being treated appropriately and that there's not some of the at least reports of what would appear to me to be inappropriate behavior. But we've got to get answers. And so far, I don't think the state investigation has gotten answers. And I can tell you, we have not been able to get a clear answer from the Department of Health and Human Services, Secretary Azar. I had the opportunity during a recent hearing to ask Secretary Azar for a response. He's not gotten back to me. And unfortunately, it shows this administration's, I believe, lackadaisical response towards anything that deals with immigrant children. So they're not answering your questions. Are uh, you getting a response from the center itself? Well, we were able to take have staff up there, Senator Kane and Congressman Goodlatte. They had a chance to look at the facility. All but one of the children listed in the lawsuit have been voluntarily deported and are no longer cooperating with the officials. ORR, which is this organization that is that's supposed to be taking care of refugee resettlement, has been a bit overwhelmed with uh, the Trump administration's move to this zero-tolerance policy and this influx of separated children. Again, let me make clear that the Stanton facility does not have kids who are there from the zero, so-called zero-tolerance policy, but the overall burdens on ORR to try to meet the court orders, I think, are probably uh, slowing down us getting some of our responses. What safeguards would you like to see in place at the facility to protect the kids? Well, I think it's important that the guards have appropriate training. There needs to be discipline, understand, but some of the reports of discipline in terms of stripping someone, having them bound to a chair, left in that chair for hours at end, putting a hood over their head, seem well beyond anything that would even take place at even some of our toughest prisons in terms of appropriate uh, correctional behavior. And again, remember, these are accusations made. The facility has a chance to defend itself. We feel that has to play out as well. And what we want to really hear from is uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary, Secretary Azar. He needs to give us a response. Do you think housing non-criminal immigrant children in a local juvenile center, detention center, is an acceptable practice? I think that's a fair question. I think when we built these facilities on a regional basis, they were to house kids from Virginia. Candidly, it's something I think once we get the full answers of what has happened or has not happened in Stanton, I think we do need to step back and say, is it appropriate for these kind of children to be housed in what is otherwise viewed as a regional facility dealing with kids in the valley? You know, But it raises the overall question of why we need immigration reform. I remind folks that the Senate passed broad-based bipartisan immigration reform a few years back that would have strengthened the borders, that would have absolutely allowed those young DACA kids, kids who came here as so-called dreamers to get a path to citizenship. Uh, These were things that the president himself had indicated he would be supportive of. Yet when we had a chance to deal with this issue, he kept changing the goalposts. And uh, I think we're seeing the failure of, of an immigration policy play out right now in the Shenandoah Valley. Thank you so much for your time, Senator. Thank you so much, Christopher. Take care.
Summertime is camping season, and some opponents of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline are hoping to capitalize on that, inviting those who would like to uh, pitch a tent in a beautiful place to come to Bath County. Virginia Public Radio's Sandy Hausman reports. Bill and Lynn Limpert dreamed of retiring here to the mountains of Bath County, the second least populous county in the state. Nine years ago, they bought 120 acres of rugged terrain and ancient trees. It seemed impossible that development would encroach on their quiet way of life. But then they got a letter from Dominion asking to purchase a right-of-way for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. It was February 12, 2016. Uh, didn't sleep a lot that night, I can tell you that. What is now Miracle Ridge with the biggest trees you've ever seen in your life and gives you a spiritual feeling as you walk through them would become a pile of rubble 3,000 feet long right through the center of our property, invisible from our front porch and from our bedroom window as well. Bill, who is 71, felt uniquely qualified to battle Dominion. He was once an environmental regulator for the state of Maryland. My specialty is pollution from construction sites. Limpert thinks Dominion has an impossible job in trying to install a pipeline here. For one thing, the slopes are steep and subject to landslides. For another, the ground is karst. And in karst terrain, the water runs underground in fragile limestone channels. The first blast could collapse the channel that's bringing water to our well or our neighbor's spring. And in his professional opinion, the erosion control measures Dominion has offered will not work. They're the worst erosion and sediment control plans I've ever seen as well. His neighbor, Jeanette Robinson, doesn't talk about geology. For her, the heartbreak lies in history, a farm in the family since 1792. My ancestor fought in the Revolutionary War, and at that time the government didn't have money to pay people, so they gave them land. So uh, we have a copy of the land grant framed, and uh, it's something that's dear to all of us. So she and her husband, Gary, joined the Limperts in issuing an invite, welcoming anyone who wants to come and see just what's threatened by a gas pipeline they say is not needed. Bill Limpert has studied the numbers for North Carolina and Virginia, where demand for energy has actually fallen. The U.S. Department of Energy says that that consumption will remain flat at least through 2030. Our country's got an energy glut right now. We believe strongly that this gas, if it goes through, will be shipped overseas. Um, uh, so we don't think that there's a public need for it. And in terms of legal issues, I, I really feel like if we have a just legal system, this pipeline's not going to be built. The Chesapeake Climate Action Network, a nonprofit that's fighting the pipeline, happily accepted the offer to come and camp in Bath County. Director Mike Tidwell says a few people have come so far, but more will be boarding buses in Hampton Roads. The right-of-way is going through some of those communities, especially some African-American communities that feel like whenever there's a sacrifice being asked of a community, often it's communities of color who have to bear that sacrifice. You know, these are folks who are connecting the dots, too, when it comes to rising seas. Why are these Norfolk neighborhoods flooding? Why can't I get my kid to the hospital when she has asthma because of the flooding? They're connecting that to sea level rise and global warming, which is connected to the use of fossil fuels, including frat gas. The campout will continue through September 8th, and the Chesapeake Climate Action Network says it may inspire other remote communities to host similar protests this summer. In Bolar, Virginia, I'm Sandy Hausman.
And finally, an update on uh, planning in the Charlottesville area coming up on the one-year anniversary of that deadly white supremacist rally. The University of Virginia will close the main grounds the weekend of August 11th and 12th amid fears that white supremacists and counter-protesters may clash. The Daily Progress reported a few days ago that UVA has substantially updated its policies for demonstrations and gatherings since last year's deadly rally. The closures may prevent the group UVA Students United from holding a planned protest at the Rotunda Steps on August 11th. Meanwhile, Charlottesville City is also making preparations. About a dozen downtown streets will be closed to vehicles beginning on Friday, August 10th. Hawes Spencer from partner station WCVE has this report. Although the rally organizer says the only planned gathering will be 100 miles to the north in Washington, Police Chief Rashal Brackney says public safety leaders are moving forward anyway with a unified plan. I'm confident that we're all on message, but more importantly that we all have the same single vision and focus for defining a successful event, and that's that we do and put everything in place to mitigate or moderate any harm that might be coming towards the community downtown resident and business owner Sherry Lewis. I'm impressed by the level of preparedness and by their response to questions. The chief says that bad behaviors, not ideology, are what will be policed that weekend. In Charlottesville, Hawes Spencer. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier. Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stoltzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg in Rockingham County. As is always the case, you can find much more about all the stories you heard today and every day at WMRA.org. And that includes photos and hyperlinks you can follow to learn more. If you're interested in supporting our ability to keep bringing you these stories and all the news, go to our website, Mouse Over News, then click on News and Information Fund. And be sure to click like on Facebook at WMRA Public Radio and follow me on Twitter at WMRA News to get the latest on our coverage. In the meantime, you can get a daily local news update on your smartphone every weekday morning. Subscribe to our news podcast, the WMRA Daily. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.